Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Patrick Phillips, Interim President of the University of Oregon and a Professor of Biology. Patrick, it's great to have you here. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. It's great to be back, as they say. <laughs> so, um, as everyone knows, prior to your appointment as Interim President by the UO Board of Trustees on August 16th, you served as Provost. How did that, how has the transition been and how did the role of provost prepare you for this one? Uh, I think it prepared me very well for a number of reasons. One is that uh, you know President Schill was very generous in including me in every discussion. Sometimes I felt a little too generous in how many meetings I was called into, but uh, in the end, that turned out to be great, um, uh, great training as well as great opportunity to to fully understand the operations. And we'll probably talk about it in a second, but. Also, uh, the, the way that the entire university had to respond to the COVID crisis uh, brought all the, all the units of campus into very close uh, work. And so I really got to know all the vice presidents um, and their operations very well as provost, which wouldn't always be the case. Um, and so the silos really uh, got eliminated, but also um, just understanding where people are coming from and what their work is uh, was great. And so. I feel very fortunate that we have an amazing leadership team that's uh, remained stable despite this transition in president and uh, everybody's very motivated and excited for the work that we're doing. And that makes my life uh, not only possible, but easy uh, at the moment. Nothing yep. is ever easy over time for sure. <laughs> uh, just to clarify for our viewers, vice presidents handle the, what do you call it, the operational side of the institution and, and vice provost and the provost is in charge of the academic side of the institution. Yeah, the, so the provost is an interesting position because uh, now actually we uh, we rename things a little bit, uh, but the the provost is provost and executive vice president, um, and so you're second in command to the university. But vice presidents uh, run things like the financial operations and uh, housing and student services, those things. Uh, vice provosts uh, run programs like advising and, of course. The real job of the provost is to work with the deans and to support all the academic operations, especially uh, the faculty and staff within departments, schools, colleges. So, tell us about some of your your most proudest your your most proudest achievements as provost. Your proudest achievements as provost. Well, what I would say is, uh, so I became provost in uh, June of 1999. Everybody knows these, uh, uh, wait, 1999? <laughs> <laughs> that's a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> 2019. And uh, so nine months later is when uh, COVID uh, hit. And so um, the thing I'm most proud about is just how proud I am of the university as a whole. Um, that we really held together. There was a lot of difficult times, there's no question, uh, hard conversations. But at the end of the day, definitely uh, many employees on campus were impacted, especially in our housing and food services. But within the provost portfolio, um, global education, there was none. Um, so they, uh, that was hard on uh, a number of those employees. But all the faculty and staff in the academic units, they were all, we were all, um, kept whole, no one was laid off, no one's salary was uh, adjusted. And that, I gotta say, was not true at most universities and colleges across the, the country. So, but more than that, I, I made the statement early on, um, my biggest concern uh, as provost was that we would lose our sense of self and the sense of 
a, a community and the academy. Um, and I think we, it was hard, and it's been very, very hard on people. People are quite raw through all of that, but uh, we preserve that sense. And that's what I'm feeling right now, starting out as interim president, is just this amazing energy to kind of, let's get on uh, being the University of Oregon moving forward. The other thing I would say is that uh, we didn't just deal with COVID. Um, uh, many faculty and staff, hundreds and hundreds actually, uh, were very generous with their time and I launched a series of conversations about initiatives that would be moving forward. Uh, really started with the Environment Initiative and there was hundreds of people that participated. Adele Amos, who's the uh, leader of that initiative, ran workshops. I attended, I think, almost all of them just to kind of do some rah-rah stuff and uh, came forward with work. We've also done it um, uh, in the sport and wellness area, did a lot of work around entrepreneurship and um, many, many conversations around diversity over the years. Um, but the, the most amazing one was really the Bomber Institute when uh, got together with a group of faculty from our really two outstanding uh, programs in psychology in the College of Ed and said, hey, we're." we can do great things here if we do them together. And it only took them about an hour to say, you know what we really need to do is address the, this rising crisis in uh, children's mental and behavioral health. We brought that, this was just a year ago, we brought that idea to Stephen Connie Bomber, and they said, yeah, this is exactly right. And, and then uh, we asked them for $425 million and they said yes. And, uh, and those faculty continue. The generosity of spirit in, in that group is unbelievable. 25 or so faculty have built in just over the summer an entire new curriculum for a new degree, a new way of, of um, addressing this issue from a workforce standpoint. I don't know that any university, I, I will probably never experience this again quite like this. And I helped get the night campus started, as you know. It's really amazing and it's very gratifying. So tell us a little bit more about uh, the purchase of the Concordia campus and, and the move of the Bomber Institute up there. How's that going? It's going very well. It's a, a complex operation. So uh, again, right away the faculty said, if we're going to address this, what we really need to do is think about diverse populations that are especially uh, differentially impacted uh, in the mental health crisis. And, uh, you know, Eugene is a great city, but it's not the most diverse place. And we decided if we're going to make uh, an impact in Oregon, centering things in Portland would uh, make the most sense. Coincidentally, uh, Concordia University had shut down their operations. And so this uh, basically once in a generation opportunity to uh, obtain that campus. So the bombers were supportive uh, of that idea. Um, the, some of the facilities on that campus are uh, world-class and some are a little older, um, but it also provides us an opportunity to move our, um, the rest of our Portland operations to what's more of a traditional campus feel. Um, there's pluses and minuses to that. So uh, we are working on that, working with planning architects. The faculty had a chance at the end of the last academic year to talk about what they were looking for. So um, lots of work going on, but um, this is not the greatest construction market still. Um, and so uh, we're, we're working forward um, with getting the renovation plans and all that working. 
There, is there anybody working there? I mean, and, and there are faculty, any programs that are operational there? are there no now? faculty. So the Bomber Institute has uh, probably about five or six employees now. They're based out of the White Stag Building uh, downtown, so they have offices there. Uh, we have a couple of folks uh, based on the, on the campus there, on the Concordia site. Um, but we won't be opening our first courses uh, and our first uh, programs until basically a year from now. So that's our target. It's looking like logistically not everything will be able to start at the same time because uh, some of the uh, specialty programs we have, especially uh, 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 College of Design programs that have a lot of intense uh, fabrication and maker spaces and those kinds of things. We want to make sure that we do that right and not rush it. And so uh, that will take a little more time for planning and uh, construction. And eventually the Old Town location is going to be sold? Is that the concept or other programs? I think it's complex to know exactly what's uh -huh. going to happen. Yeah. Uh, you may have heard uh, Portland is uh, uh, undergoing some changes <laughs> over the last couple of years. So what that uh, real estate uh, market looks like, I think we have experts that are uh, helping to advise us and think about it. Um, there's a variety of options uh, for sure. So nothing to say at the moment, but, uh, but we hope to work that out over this coming year. So you mentioned the Knight Campus for Accelerating Scientific Impact. We've um, begun phase two. So give us an update on phase two of the Knight Campus. Yeah, so phase two is uh, underway. Bob Goldberg, who we uh, is now uh, old hat uh, in, as the executive director of the Knight Campus. We have, um, I think, about 13 or 14 faculty, just outstanding. The, some, we have three of the young faculty won uh, very prestigious NIH awards over the last year. They're doing wonderfully. So the, the next phase is to build another building. Um, it'll be on the parking lot um, that's uh, right along the research uh, avenue there that extends out of Agate. Um, those plans are moving forward. Uh, uh, there's a design phase and, and we're going through the campus planning process to, to understand um, exactly um, how that's going to work. But I hope that we'll be breaking ground, you know. Um, uh, I actually don't know the exact schedule, but certainly we'll be finalizing our plans in the new year. So let's talk about um, your aspirations for this coming year. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I have this title interim, and so uh, it's a balance of, of uh, factors here, right? So I, I need to be respectful of the transition. Um, but uh, I've been doing this work and um, involved in all of it. And so there's this uh, tremendous sense and my direct charge from the Board of Trustees to not lose momentum. So it's not a holding pattern, it's a, it's a moving forward. And so um, different projects like the initiatives um, are moving forward and the faculty have made recommendations to me as a provost and now Janet Woodruff Borden who's taken over. Uh, and again, it's kind of like President Schill and I had this relationship, uh, Janet and I had this very close working relationship so she knows everything that's going on in the provost's office and so we haven't really missed a beat on those things. So really looking at um, uh, institutionalizing the initiatives, uh, we'll be doing the shared governance parts of that, especially uh, bringing things we've been working with the Senate leadership about how to bring the new academic programs through the Senate and to make sure that all the faculty know what's going on. And again, these just amazing energy from the faculty leadership of each of those um, uh, initiatives. Uh, we have had this campus climate survey that uh, finalized at the end of this year. We're looking at that. I'm dedicated uh, to uh, understanding what actions we can take uh, immediately as well as setting up a long-term process for 
um, addressing the, the climate concerns that have arisen. Um, we have other things about uh, student success. You know, one of uh, President Schill's priorities was student success. We uh, did great, really uh, raised our graduation rates. We're really thinking about how to expand um, what that sense is. My personal feeling is that we need to be thinking about the whole student about and their whole life. That's what we're called to do uh, directly by our students and their families, as well as I think more and more um, the, the world is seeing universities as maybe not doing that as well. So that's multiple components. We have to think about uh, mental health of students, uh, just like with the Bomber Institute, we have our own concerns that we need to be addressing. We need to continue on with academic success and the support of those students. Uh, we have Tyson Hall, that, that program still needs to, it opened during COVID. It's, uh, it's hard to remember that, but uh, it really the building the culture of uh, integrated student success. And then thinking more and more about um, uh, careers and, and how we're launching. Uh, that and how we can incorporate that thinking um, into uh, the, the coursework that we do. It's something that we've been emphasizing is that, uh, and this is a great thing for the Humanities Center, for instance, is we know the critical skills, the writing, uh, being able to speak, all of those things are actually the hallmarks of what long-term career success is. We need to not necessarily do those things differently, but make sure that students are aware of how they're building those skills and then can articulate those on their resumes and other things. But there's also just direct uh, support for students. Partially the increasing costs of student tuition is, it's a national, there's nobody in the university system that isn't seeing the national narrative about are universities worth it. Um, we are definitely worth it and every statistic says, shows that that's true. But um, just making that very clear and tangible uh, to students, I think, is going to be important for the long-term success of the university. So that's not an interim activity. That's, a, that's the rest of our lives together activity. So one of the concerns that uh, President Schill had and that you have is diversity on campus. And first, let's talk a little bit about the UO's collaboration with the Native American Advisory Council. Yeah, I had an opportunity to meet with them uh, as president uh, just a few weeks ago. It was a great conversation. Uh, with that council, and there, I have other advisory councils, the thing that I want to make sure that we're doing is not being performative, kind of reporting on what we're doing. But the, I take the word advisory seriously. Um, I think one of the things that I personally learned over uh, the last four years in particular is to really respect people's lived experience and to listen carefully about what they're saying. They, they, they are speaking the truth uh, to me and I, I definitely don't have the same experiences. Um, with the Native American Advisory Council, we are very fortunate, I don't think people recognize, that we have the leaders from the tribes coming to the university telling us what they need, what they think, and how we can be supporting their students. Um, so I brought some pretty substantive issues. Uh, I think uh, you'll be hearing about those over the next month, uh, what our response is going to be. I think it's something that we can be proud of. There's just so much work to be done, obviously, um, and uh, our commitment as an institution I think just continues to grow. And I, again, I hear it from all of our faculty and students every day that they want us to do more, they want us to be better, and that's my personal commitment as well. So um, we've, ha we've had a very good record hiring faculty of color. We've had a not very good record retaining faculty of color. So 
what are how are you thinking about that? How is that? I mean, it seems like that's a problem that we we've, we've wrestled with for a long time. Where, where are you on that question? Well, that's the issue. As a matter of fact, I'm just meeting uh, tomorrow, I think, with our uh, presidential uh, uh, diversity advisory council. Um, and uh, that's a conversation that even as provost, I was trying to um, drive with them. Um, we are fortunate that uh, with Vice President Yvette Alex Asenso and uh, her units, uh, Charlotte Motz-Gallagher, and also uh, Gerard Sandoval, who's now Vice President of the Senate, we uh, really been digging in on uh, what the, uh, those folks have uh, called their active retention and so we've done a lot of interviews um, of existing faculty, what they see their challenges are. Um, I'll give two examples, some that are uh, well-known to people and some that I think are not as well-known. Uh, the well-known one is service and uh, unacknowledged service load. So if you're a black faculty member, uh, black students will find you and ask you <laughs> how you do what you do and what they should be doing. Um, that doesn't happen with white faculty as much. Uh, you just have kind of a normal, you know, office hours. Um, day one, well, I think it was literally the first week as provost, I went to the faculty women of color and they said, this is our number one issue. We've been talking about this for years. You're not doing anything about it. And I said, okay, let's get, so I started talking about it. We've been working with the, the Senate leadership. There was a whole um, task force on that. They made recommendations, and now the provost office is moving forward. Those recommendations will continue to start addressing that. The, uh, another less known example is that we view um, Eugene as a very welcoming, uh, open place. It is also not a diverse place. And uh, one of the challenges we hear from many of the faculty who are departing is that their families actually are just not happy here. And, whatever an adult faculty member who's uh, you know, made it through probably incredible challenges themselves and now have landed here, they don't necessarily want to see that for their children. Um, so this is not a problem that's solvable by the University of Oregon. We could do our work perfectly and what happens in a school could be different. Um, so I think that we have a role as a, a citizens of the community as as the most important organization in the community to start addressing these issues um, more at the level of the whole city through the mayor's office those kinds of things that's a path forward that we don't totally know what that's going to look like but um, I'm very committed to bringing that message because I hear it from the faculty directly um, so talk to us about the impacts of the world athletic championships that were here in July so it's a great uh, moment. Obviously, uh, there was a lot of uh, feelings about uh, the, the changes in Hayward Field. There's no question about that. That was clear. Um, but I'll tell you, people are just blown away. So that was uh, terrific. It turned out to be uh, a great event. Coming out of COVID, it was a challenge. It obviously got delayed a whole year. As provost, I got to say, um, that was the, maybe the only good part of COVID. It allowed me to work with uh, um, the folks running the, the championships to make sure that our academic programs uh, were highlighted and integrated uh, even more than I think um, they had been because this planning was going on before I started over. So for instance, one of our proudest stories is that the opening credits for the championships, um, that was an open competition 
and that competition was won by one of our uh, students in the School of Journalism and Communication. So that was seen by uh, everybody, every single event. And I don't mean just a few people. 18 million people um, in the United States uh, watched the uh, championships, and we were careful that the University of Oregon logo and things were, um, were prominently displayed. It was a great advertisement for the state of Oregon. Um, it was a great advertisement uh, for uh, Eugene and um, the University of Oregon. But more than that, we are uh, a, uni a university that wants to be internationally relevant, um, and we are, but we can do better. Uh, One billion people across the world watch the uh, uh, world championships. As you probably know, track and field is more popular uh, off our shores than on our shores even. Um, and then I just think we just have to be proud that this is the first time that the World Championships ever been hosted in the United States. And it was Eugene, Oregon, this little town uh, on the West Coast that pulled it off. And people were just effusive and, and uh, how happy they were and the, the, the athletes, the visitors. So we're just very proud of, uh, of how it came together. Um, it was uh, it was dicey uh, situation as a high stakes uh, kind of thing, but um, I, in the end, I'm so so happy that we did it. So, in addition to being a university administrator, you are a researcher. You are a, a biologist. So, first of all, tell us a little bit about your research, and then tell us have you been able to do any of it? <laughs> so, yes, remarkably, through all of this, and it's uh, it's kind of a, a learned activity because I've been doing lots of different things, as you know, over the last uh, 10 years or so. Um, so the work that we do, my background is actually in uh, population genetics. So I'm interested in how genetic variation works within populations, how it changes over time, especially how complex organisms like you and I are put together. You know, we look, you and I look about as similar as any two faculty on campus, but <laughs> still we're quite different, right? Um, and so uh, what, what causes that? A lot of that is genetically based. So I'm, that's been my field of interest. I started working on this very small little nematode worm called C. elegans, which is a model system that's studied by thousands of people. It's one of the best understood organisms. When I started doing that work, some discoveries were made um, for some mutations that made the worms live about uh, three to ten times longer. So we started looking at that from a natural variation point of view. So we've been very generously funded by the National Institutes of Aging to um, be part of large projects looking for drugs that make worms live longer with the thought that, um, that those things can make us live uh, healthier, longer lives. Um, so we've been doing more and more of that uh, kind of work, which is a path that I never anticipated when I started as a graduate student, whenever that was 35 years ago. Um, so I've been very fortunate that, uh, you know, our, our lab is one of the best funded on campus. And because of that, I've been able to hire professional staff in particular that have been with me. Uh, some people have been with me 15 years. So even as I've done these other jobs, the kind of core activities of the staff, the environment, we have about 14 people, uh, not including undergrads working in the lab right now. A couple graduate students, a couple postdocs, but a lot of uh, research uh, technicians and assistants. So it's still a great community. They do their stuff. I'm meeting with them every week. Uh, when I became provost, I said, hey, if we're going to do this, you have to like really take the reins and, and um, get it going. And we did. So 
we have a lot of 8 a.m. meetings and a lot of 5 p.m. meetings is the way that I, I make it <laughs> happen. I meet on the weekends with, uh, with, with people when we're trying to finalize papers. So it's still working. Uh, I don't think someone coming to this institution from the outside could set up a lab like this, mm -hmm. but it's the fact that I've been here for uh, several decades and, and we just know what we're doing. So, um, but it's, in the end, it all comes down to the students and the, and the um, and the research staff um, and their their love for what they do and their and their support for uh, doing great research. So you just said you've been here for several decades, over 20 years you've been here. What's kept you here? Many of your colleagues over those <laughs> 20 plus years <laughs> yeah. have moved on. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been dedicated to, uh, I love Oregon, the state. I moved here when I was 17 years old. I was from Southern California. It's kind of a I don't know, I was gonna say ugly ducking fish out of water. I don't know what, but when I moved to Oregon, uh, the moisture uh, nourished my soul as much as uh, my skin. And um, so I've always been dedicated to Oregon. I think uh, um, I've loved working with my colleagues in the Department of Biology. Um, I've been impressed by kind of the innovative approaches that we take through our research institutes and um, being able to work across fields. Um, but it was really my time getting the night campus started where I started going around the state and seeing what the state as a whole needs. And, and quite frankly, it needs a lot. And so I've, I've dedicated my efforts to that. It's not always easy, but um, this is a place that is of a perfect, it's kind of this Goldilocks scale. We're never big enough to get everything that we want, but we're not so small that we can't do things. But individuals can make a huge impact on this campus. And if you bring energy, if you bring vision, you can make things happen. But it does take positive engagement. And the other thing is it always takes teamwork. There's not enough of, any, of anybody here to make something work. So you have to be very creative in the kind of networks and, and uh, uh, groups that you bring together. And um, I've just always been energized by that kind of uh, we, we try harder uh, attitude here. Um, <laughs> And so um, that's, that's why I'm here. And um, I've been very, very happy. We were talking earlier, you know, raised my kids in Eugene. Um, they've, uh, they've really had great experiences here. So I want to build that for everybody and, and uh, make this an incredibly welcoming, inclusive, supportive environment. I think that's, uh, that's what we owe um, everybody in this institution. It's what we owe Eugene. It's what we owe in the state. That takes work, it doesn't happen by accident, and so I, I'm very happy about that. So we just have a couple of minutes left, Patrick. This will probably be my last question. So um, as you know, I, uh, I've been interviewing Mike Schill every year at the beginning of the year. It's always the first interview that we do. Um, and I, my question at the end of, the, of all those interviews is the same one I'm gonna ask you now. Um, do you have any book or books that you have recently read that you would recommend? Yeah, so uh, I recently was in uh, uh, McMorrin uh, when the president <laughs> show was moving out. His library is almost insanely <laughs> massive, uh, so he's constantly reading. Mine is less so, uh, I would say. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's kind of boring. Um, uh, I've been reading, you know, organizational theory books and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, my favorite recent one is Good to Great. I think it's uh, a really um, resonates with a, a lot of things that I think the University of Oregon could be doing and, and strives to do in terms of innovation. It's not necessarily a quantitative book. I like to cook. 
and so my there's this um, uh, uh, there's this kind of magazine book called Arts Culinaire, um, which is this super hoity-toity uh, chef's uh, thing. I just like to look through it and say, ooh, I wish I had time to make those dishes. Um, so for me, that's a lot of what I do in my relaxation time is, uh, is kind of uh, uh, think about things that I could be doing. Uh, so, Yes, I'm familiar with that syndrome. Yes, exactly. Well, Patrick Phillips, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for doing the job that you're doing. Um, I expect I won't be interviewing you a year from now, but you never know. You just never know what's yeah. going to happen in this crazy world of ours. So thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for uh, bringing the university community uh, uh, to uh, this audience for now almost a decade. It's, it's really a valuable service. I appreciate it. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thanks so much. I've been speaking with Patrick Phillips, the interim president of the University of Oregon. Thanks, everybody, for watching. <laughs>